I do have one more announcement for you. The, uh, this is the last week to uh, sign up for Oikos groups, the uh, home study groups. We've had a very good sign up so far, but uh, we're leaving it open this one last week. And um, we don't have anything in the bulletin for you to sign up with, so you can do one of two things. You can either, if you haven't signed up and want to, and I would encourage you to be part of one. We have a dozen groups meeting this year. You can either call um, um, Pastor Vince uh, at the office this week, or you could, again, take one of those few cards and just put your name and, uh, and phone number down on that. And, and on the back of the sound booth, there's a little pink basket. You could just leave it there. That would work and indicate your interest there. This uh, past week, Tuesday morning to be precise, I, uh, it, it snuck up on me. Uh, so it was, uh, in a sense, uh, not, not by planning, but I turned on the TV in the morning uh, as I was getting dressed for work. And, and um, the news channel I turned on was rebroadcasting the uh, news from uh, September 11th, 2001. I don't know if anybody else saw a rebroadcast of, uh, of the news events of that day. But as I uh, was watching that, I was reliving. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what I was doing six years ago when I was watching uh, the news reports and uh, seeing uh, airplanes crashing into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. And as I watched that rebroadcast of the, of the news again six years later, it all came flooding back to me. Memories uh, came pouring back. I remember weeping six years ago and uh, my eyes filled with tears again as I watched this happen. I, I was just sort of overwhelmed with the emotions of, of sadness and, and disbelief that this could really be happening. That, uh, that some people could have such hatred in their hearts that they would wantonly kill not only themselves, but what turned out to be 3,200 other people whose only crime was getting up that morning, that Tuesday morning, and going to work. And their lives were snuffed out. What would cause somebody to do that? What would cause somebody to hijack an airplane full of people and ram it into the side of a building, destroying thousands of other lives in the process? What's the difference? This is a better question. What's the difference between you and them? What's the fundamental difference? What prevents you from doing something similarly despicable? Shockingly, the Bible says not very much. Not very much at all. Given proper provocation, every one of us is capable of doing the exact same thing. I know that's hard to believe. I know that we don't even want to consider the reality of that. One once said, a theologian, that we are closer to Adolf Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. And we don't like to think like that. When we look in the mirror in the morning, we like to to see ourselves as doing okay, as pretty good people. We've got a few problems. We have a few flaws. But we don't really like to take a good, hard look deep down inside. Beloved, we have met the enemy. And it is us. It is us. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 1127. You know, we desperately need a Savior. Desperately need a Savior. Not just once somewhere historically, but each and every moment we need a Savior. 
We need Jesus Christ. On March 18th of this year, so that's about six months ago, we entered into a long, dark tunnel called the Book of Romans. Specifically, we entered in at that point, six months ago, into Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. That's where the tunnel began. It's been a long and difficult trip. It has been bad news after bad news, week after week. Believe me, I understand it. I have to prepare it every week. I've got to live with it all week long. Six months ago, we began an exposition of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul now has gone on over these last six months and the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he has systematically demonstrated the reality of his statement that the wrath of God is rightly revealed from heaven against humanity. Because humanity is wicked to the core. He has demonstrated through both observation and through reasoned logic the dreadfulness of the human condition. The desperate nature apart from Jesus Christ and the necessity for a righteousness to come from God, Romans 1.17, outside of the human system, outside of the box, if you like, to be poured in for us because there's nothing that we have that we can offer God. The prophet said, what shall a man offer for the sin of his soul? The fruit of his own body, that is not sufficient. Everything you have, everything you own, everything you touch, everything you are is defiled by your sin and unacceptable before a holy God. This is the bad news. And beloved, without understanding the extent of the bad news, we do not understand the extent of the good news. What makes the gospel good is an understanding, a hard-nosed understanding of who we really are apart from Christ. The text before us this morning begins in verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul is going to call upon the Scriptures at this point. Up until now, as I say, he has mostly worked from observation of the human condition and from logic, from his brilliant mind, to piece together his argument, a very systematic argument. He has dismantled pagan Gentile humanity. He has overturned self-righteous Jewish humanity. And he has charged that all are under sin. He is going to place his capstone upon it, beginning in verse 9 through verse 18, by calling the Scriptures as witnesses. He's going to draw on six different passages of Scripture. He's going to enlist them, just pull them together, threading them like pearls on a necklace, if you will, to, to conclude his argument. So that he can then say, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, in the process of pulling these six different scripture passages together, drawn primarily from the Psalms and the prophets, he is going to list 14 different expressions of depravity. 14 of them. And the sobering reality is that these 14 expressions of depravity are true of all of us all of the time. Every single person in this room, all of the time. They might not be openly manifested all of the time, but they lie like a cancer just below the surface and they await the slightest provocation, which will cause them to erupt like a volcano and spew forth its bitter and poisonous lava 
upon all. Yes, we are redeemed in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have a Savior and desperately need one. And His atonement has extinguished our guilt and we are going to spend eternity with the Father. And yes, He is in the process of changing and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. But, beloved, we still have a huge problem. That huge problem is our heart. Jesus says it's out of the heart that come the issues of life. The corruptions reside deep down within us. As Paul completes his evaluation of humanity here, and I've given this to you in your notes, he cites 14 expressions of depravity. We're not going to get them all today. But he does this to show how bad off we really are. How bad off? So that we will flee to the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope. Our only hope. Beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Wow. Beginning part of chapter 3 here, verses 1 through 8, we covered this a month or so ago, so let me just remind you a little bit. Is an account of an imaginary dialogue that Paul is having with his Jewish opponents, verses 1 through 8. There's a series of four questions there, and we address that. Questions that are, arose because of Paul's presentation of the of the. Uh, of, of the state of Judaism in his day and how futile it was for them to stand before God in their self-righteousness, chapter 2. And so he answers his imaginary opponent and objector there in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. And then in verse 9, we begin with this question, what then? Are we better than they? Paul is, is transitioning now, really, from something that has been stimulated by this prior discussion. Now, there is some differences of opinion on who the we is there in, uh, in verse 9. Is it possible that he is talking about himself, the we there, or is it that he's talking about the Jews? Is Paul identifying himself with the Jews? There is, as I say, some legitimate differences of opinion. I have become persuaded that the we is the same we use a little bit later in the verse. It says, for we have already charged. And that Paul is basically talking about himself and his fellow Christians. I think what Paul is doing here is sort of rounding out his indictment of humanity. He has already condemned the Gentiles in chapter 1 and done a very thorough job, hasn't he? He's left none of them to escape. Pagan Gentiles. In chapter 2, he has indicted the Jewish nation as well and left them without excuse. So I think he's condemned Jew and Gentile alike. And the question that remains is, what about Christians? So I think that's the last thing he's addressing here. Are we, that is Christians, better than they, that is those that have been condemned, both Gentile pagans and self-righteous Jews? 
Do they, that is Christians, somehow have a better nature than the rest of humanity? Are they different? Are we different? Are we somehow inherently superior to those others? Maybe, maybe there's something more morally desirable within us. Maybe, maybe God saw something in us that caused Him to be favorably disposed towards us. What is Paul's answer? Verse 9. Not at all. Do you see it? Not at all. No, we are not better than anyone else. We fall under the same condemnation as the rest of humanity. Those of us who are following Jesus Christ. What is true of them is true of us deep down inside. The difference is we now have a Savior to redeem us. And the Spirit of God dwelling within us, resisting and changing us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. But the stuff that he's working with is the same crud as everybody else. All under sin, verse 9 at the end. Do you see it? All under sin. We have already charged. Jews, Gentiles, that is all of humanity, are under sin. It is a tyrant that dominates every aspect of our being. The morally upright Jew has no advantage, nor the reprobate Gentile, nor the saved Christian in terms of being acceptable before God. He has not inclined himself to us because of anything inherent within us. All under sin. The preposition under is an interesting word here and worthy of a moment's notice. Hupo in the Greek, hopo harmartian would be the Greek, under sin. And what it means is to be underneath or below something. That's what the preposition means. It is to be under or to be below something. This preposition, hupo, is used, for example, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 9, and it's instructively used there, I believe, the centurion who refers to the soldiers that are under him. Do you remember? He says, I have certain soldiers under me and I command this one to go there and he goes and that one to go there and he goes, right? Because he is over them. They are under him. He is over them. That is, he dominates them. He rules them. It's used over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to speak of the Mosaic Law. It speaks there of the Mosaic law like a schoolmaster that restrains the Jews prior to the coming of Christ. They are under the law. It's a restraining force in their lives. It controls them. And so when Paul here in verse 9 speaks of all Jew, Gentile as under sin, that is that what he is saying is that humanity is underneath sin. It is dominated by sin. It is controlled by sin. Sin acts as a governing force upon humanity. Sin is like a wrestling opponent who has flipped us on our back and pinned our shoulders to the mat. There is no escape. It dominates us. It controls us. It drives us. The Bible clearly teaches us. Humanity is under the dominion of sin. Beloved, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's who we are. That's the predicament we find ourselves in. It is our nature to sin. It is what we do naturally. It's what comes to us naturally. It is our first response and impulse in every situation. We are enslaved to it. 
It dominates us. It controls our thinking, our feelings, our words, our deeds. It ravages our bodies and our minds. Theologians have a name for this condition. They call it total depravity. Total depravity. This expression, total depravity, does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. None of us in here has lived up to the full potential of our evil. None of us is as bad as we could be. But we are as bad off as we could be. That's what total depravity means. It means our condition, our situation is as bad off as it gets. As I said, it lies within every one of our hearts, given the right provocation to spew forth any and all degrees of wickedness. Just how deeply enslaved to sin we are, Paul's going to make clear for us in these verses. Now, notice just one other thing. Paul's use here in verses 9 through 12 of the words all and none. Do you see it? The word all appears twice, the word none four times. The reason he does this is he wants to make sure there's no misconceptions here that somehow there's a special case. Now, this is true of everybody, but not this one person here. All, Paul says, all humanity this is true of. There is none. That is, there is no person that is, has escaped this fate. None. Nobody. From the most morally upright person you have ever heard or read about to the most despicable person you have ever read or heard about, all reside under the dominion of sin. All. Let's take a look at these expressions. Let's take a look at it. Paul begins, verse 10, as it is written. As it is written, this is just a standard formula of emphasizing the authoritative, permanent nature of Scripture. Paul's building this upon Scripture. Now, this is the Word of God. These, by the way, are Old Testament citations. Okay? This is familiar ground. He is bringing this to bear. And he says, first, unrighteous. The first expression of depravity is that all of us are unrighteous. All of us. There is none righteous, not even one. The word righteous means to conform to the standard, the will or the character of God. To be righteous is to be conforming to the standard of God. It is to be conforming to the will of God. It is to be conforming to the character of God. That is a righteous. That would be to be righteous. What is the standard will and character of God? Well, let me just give it to you this way. The standard of God is perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want the standard? God's standard of righteousness is perfection. What is the will of God? Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, the totality of your being will be given to the loving of your God. That is the will of God for you. What is the character of God that manifests righteousness? It is holiness. 1 Peter 1.16 You shall be holy for I am holy. How close do you think you come to that kind of righteousness? How close? Two out of three? I think not, huh? Just a little bit below a passing grade? Is that it? Getting close. You know, give me a little more time, a little more effort, a little more education. I'll get there. I'm on my way. Is that true? 
Paul is not saying here, by the way, that uh, some men are not more morally upright than others. That's not what he is saying. And in fact, when we compare ourselves to, uh, to other people, we can always find somebody who's worse off than we are. Isn't that true? In fact, we like to do that. We like to look around until we can find someone else who's below us. And then we'll use them as the standard of measure because that makes us feel pretty good. But that's not the point. The standard of righteousness that God demands is not the standard of other flawed people. He does not grade on a curve. He does not hold you up against Adolf Hitler and say, well, you're better than him, so come on in. The standard God uses is himself. It's himself. His own perfect righteousness. He is your creator. He is your creator, and thus he has every right to demand of you that you emulate him. And he does. He does not negotiate this. Our shortfall against the righteousness of God would be like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. That's the biggest, deepest hole in the ground I've ever seen. And you can stand back and get a good running start. Right? Leap out there, pump your arms and legs. Some of you will go a little further than others. None of you are going to make it across. You're not even going to come close. The gulf is that big. We're not just a a little less than God's requirements. We're not just, you know, barely failing the test. We're total failures. Total failures. It is God's righteousness that is the standard by which we are measured. And the absence of that righteousness is the presence of sin. It is to fail to miss the mark of perfection. That's the requirement. How many people are righteous? Answer? Look at the text. Not even one. Nobody. Nobody makes it. We are unrighteous. Second, we are ignorant. We are ignorant. And by the way, I chose these terms specifically to be as offensive as I could. Okay? Because I don't want to gild the lily in any way. I want to shock you. We might all have our eyes opened. We are ignorant. Verse 11, there is none who understands. We not only lack essential righteousness, the scriptures say we are spiritually ignorant. Spiritually ignorant. Now again, let's define terms. That does not mean that a person cannot Understand the words of Scripture. There are many unbelieving scholars who are able to read in the original languages, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek. They understand the meaning of the words in the sentences, but as far as the impact upon their life goes, they have no clue. They are ignorant. What it means is that in a natural state, a person does not comprehend the reality of God. He can't. 
First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That is one without the spirit of God, the scriptures, he may know what all the words mean. He tell you exactly what Paul is saying, yet it is like hitting a brick wall. It does not sink in. He is ignorant. He is ignorant of God and he is ignorant of his own condition before God. An unbelieving astronomer can look through a telescope. He can spend his life studying the universe and he will miss the fundamental truth that God has placed there. And that is that the universe does what? But it displays the glory of God. Psalm 19. It's shouting at him. And he's ignorant of it. Why doesn't unsaved humanity understand God and his ways? Because in their sin, they do not want to know him. They do not want to. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They do not want to know God and they do not know God. They are ignorant of God. Humanity is unrighteous. Humanity is ignorant. Third, humanity is rebellious. Rebellious. Verse 11. There is none who seeks for God. Simply put, by nature, people do not search out or seek after God. That's what it says. By nature, people do not, all people do not seek out or search after God. Now. That statement seems to be contradicted by our own personal observations and experiences, doesn't it? We all talk about seeking God or others seeking God. We have to take it by faith here. We have to take it by faith that what the Scripture says is true and that what we observe is not That God's assessment of the human heart is an accurate assessment. And God says there is none who seeks after or searches for him. None. None. Nobody. Now, we will readily acknowledge that people are searching for some type of religious experience. We will acknowledge that for sure. Many people are searching for a religious experience or emotional fulfillment or some sort of social need. And they will couch it in the terms that they are seeking after God, but they are not seeking after God. They are seeking after their religious experience. They are seeking after their emotional fulfillment. They are seeking after their social need for relationships. But that's not the same as seeking after God. It's not the same thing at all. Man is incurably religious, curably religious. But in his depravity, he seeks to satisfy that that religious quest by a myriad of substitutes for the one true God. The human heart is an idol factory. It is churning out cheap substitutes for God constantly. Because it does not want to know the true God. Scripture is exceedingly clear on this point. It is God who takes the initiative, not man. It is God who takes the initiative. John 6, verse, excuse me, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes unless he is drawn by God first. No one. No one. Now, wait a minute, David. There are invitations in the scriptures to come to God, to seek God. How do we reconcile all that? Well, let me suggest it to you this way. 
God uses means to draw people to Himself. One of the means He uses is an invitation in His Word. But that invitation will not be effectual. That is, that it will not take root in the human mind and heart unless the Spirit of God first opens dead eyes. The word of the prophet Ezekiel, unless God removes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Turn to Matthew 11, verse 27. See an illustration of this. If you're using those pew Bibles, you'd want to look on page 969. Matthew 11, verse 27 is a great invitation of Jesus. Right? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. You know this. It's a great evangelistic appeal. I've used this passage many times. I use it. It's, I build a whole funeral sermon around it. I think it's a very powerful passage. But what I want you to notice is that this invitation, verses 28 through 30, to follow Jesus Christ is preceded immediately by a declaration that it is His will, not man's, that ultimately determines who will come and who won't. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to Me. Come to Me. God works first. Because the human heart is so dead. God uses means. Those means are invitations to repent and believe. Turn back to Romans 3. You know, probably more than any other of the statements of these 14 expressions of depravity here, Probably none are more troublesome than this one, that none who seek for God. This is the one that contradicts the prevailing methodology and notion among evangelicals today. There's a whole movement and methodology called church growth, and it has grown up around a basic misunderstanding of the depth and the extent of human depravity. Expressed in this section here. None seek for God. None. Unrighteous, ignorant, rebellious, fourth, willful. Willful. All have turned aside, he says. All have turned aside. We are willful. The failure of people to seek God is not accidental, the Scripture is saying, but deliberate. It is not an accidental failure to miss the road sign. It is a deliberate avoidance of the road sign. It is, a, it is an intentional leaving of the path of righteousness. It is an abandonment of the clear and true direction. The early church, remember this in the book of Acts? The early Christians were called followers of the way. Do you remember that? Called followers of the way. That is God's way. Paul has made it very clear for us. Gentiles, they knew God, right? Chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. They knew Him through creation and through their own conscience. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Yet they refused the knowledge God had placed within them. The Jews knew him through the scriptures. They had the witness of the scriptures, chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, and they turned away. That is, they tried to establish their own righteousness and refused his. They have both turned from the way, God's way. They have left the path. They are like a child who has wandered off from camp and is now lost in the woods. All have turned aside. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone, what? Astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
We are willful about this. Willful. Fifth, we are rancid. We are rancid. Together they have become useless. Useless. The Hebrew word that stands behind the Greek word translated here useless is the same word that means spoiled milk. It applies to spoiled milk. It applies to rotten fruit. It was used to speak of rancid meat. Useless, rancid, spoiled, soured. That which was once good and is now spoiled and fit only to be discarded. Man was originally created good. Isn't that true? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Behold, God saw the sixth day and it was what? Very good. Very good. But it has now become rotted, spoiled, rancid. Because of the fall of Adam, because of his entrance into sin, he took himself and all of us down to the trash heap. We have become like rotting food. We are a stench in the nostrils of God. We are fit only to be thrown out. Unrighteous, ignorant, rebellious, willful, rancid, and finally for this morning, immoral. Immoral. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul is saying there is none here that is morally upright. That's what it means to do good in this context. There is none who is morally upright. Remember, the standard is God's, not ours. Remember God's assessment of humanity back in Genesis 6, verse 5, just prior to the flood? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God destroyed mankind. Are we better than they? We come from the same seed stock. We have the same terminal disease. What was true of them is true of us. It is only the mercy of God that he has not destroyed the earth again. Scripture says he will destroy the earth again, not by flood, but by fire. Now, again, Paul is not denying that people can and do make morally correct decisions. That's not his point. But even those morally correct decisions have a deadly flaw. Now, listen, think with me on this. Even the morally correct decisions that somebody makes, have a, they have a deadly flaw within them. That is that they are stained by our own self-interest. They are, they are generated by our own self-interest to one degree or another. That is, to avoid negative consequences or to gain the, the approval and the favor of men. Rather than purely for the glory of God. Thus, we are immoral. We do not do good. Even the very good that we do is tainted with our sin and unacceptable before God. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Romans, he tells a story of a man in Scotland some years ago who was walking through a park one day. He was carrying a small Bible in a leather case. When he happened upon a group of young people, they mistook his Bible for a camera. They asked, him to take, they asked the man to take their picture. In response to their request, he said, I already have your picture. When the astonished youth asked him where and when he had taken it, he took out his Bible and he read to them Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 23. After saying, this is your picture. He took the opportunity to witness to them about salvation in Jesus Christ. This is your picture this morning. This is who you are. 
deep down inside. And if you will but reflect for a moment, you will know that it is true. You will know that it is true. This picture should shatter any self-confidence that you might have with regard to who you truly are. That somehow you're doing pretty good. That maybe God is going to grade on some kind of a scale, a great cosmic scale, and He's going to, he's going to get all your good stuff and put it on one side and the few bad things you've done on the other. And, the, and your manifest goodness is going to so outweigh your evil that He is going to say, boy, where have you been all my life? And welcome you in. Do not deceive yourselves. The standard is perfection. You have nothing good to put on one side of the scale if God were to even do such a thing. And the weight of your evil on the other side pins it to the ground. All this bad news could make you feel kind of hopeless, couldn't it? But you know, this is really a call to hope. Did you know that? This section is a call to hope, not hope in ourselves. See, that's the problem. We, we define hope as hope in ourselves. Well, I'm trying to shatter using the scriptures, the hope you might have in yourself. I don't want you to hope in yourself because that's vanity. We need to hope in the God who saves sinners. Paul himself said it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's your hope. It's the only hope. Shortly before his death, the uh, English hymn writer John Newton, just days before his death, he said to someone, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That is hope. That is hope. Twenty nine years ago, Jesus Christ reached out and drew me to himself. I had no interest in him, none. I was young, arrogant, blasphemer. Hater of God, running from Him, and yet at the same time constantly mocking Him. And without asking my permission, He flattened me one day, took the scales from my eyes, He unstopped my deaf ears. He gave me a look at myself through the Scriptures for who I really was. And all of my self-righteousness evaporated like that. And I called out to Jesus Christ to save me. And He did. When I was in high school, you know how you have superlatives in the yearbook? Most likely to succeed. Prettiest, whatever. My superlative was most likely to blow up the world. That was the superlative. And here I stand 29 years later as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would take a blasphemer and make him a shepherd of his people can only be the grace of God. Beloved, He can save me. He can save you. Come to Him in faith. Give up on your own self-righteousness. You've got nothing to offer. You're empty. You're dead. You're going to hell. That's where you're going. Turn to Christ. Humble your heart. Acknowledge your guilt, your lostness. Call out to Him. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I believe that Christ died on that cross in my place. I believe that You punished Him instead of me. I believe that I will live eternally if I will embrace His sacrificial gift to me. We 
finish here in a moment. We always tell people you can come to this lighted cross over here. You don't have to come to that cross in order to receive Jesus Christ. But I think it's an appropriate symbol of what you do, and that is you must come to the cross of Christ for hope. When the service ends, there will be some folks over there that will be happy to pray with you and explain the Scriptures to you more plainly if there's any questions that remain. Counsel with you that you might have life and have it abundantly. For the rest of us who have already trusted Christ for forgiveness, is this passage not for us? Is this only for other people? Oh, this is for us. This is for us. Remember, Paul was writing to believers in Rome. Is your worship a little flat today? Maybe God feels a little distant from you at times. You want to really understand worship? Then understand this. Understand what God has saved you from. And when you get a good glimpse of what He has redeemed you from, your heart will overflow with worship for Him. How could you but praise Him who has saved you from this? If this doesn't stimulate your praise to God, you better check your pulse. Maybe you don't know Him. Maybe you don't really know Him. We'll finish next week with this bad news. But even in the bad news lies the glorious good news that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Christ, the only one, the only man of whom this is not true. The only one who was perfect in righteousness, who then gave Himself as a substitute for us. Our Father, as we go forth in this week, to proclaim that glorious news of redemption in this community. May Your Spirit open blind eyes. Enable people to see themselves for who they really are. And then, Father, grant them saving faith to cling to Christ as their only hope. And we will give You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.